Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise podcast. We have some exciting news. Shrapnel is going live in 2024. The first ever live Shrapnel podcast is taking place on Friday the 9th of February 2024 at 7pm in Queen's University, Belfast. And they are going to be in conversation with Paul Burgess discussing his new book and experiences that lent to its writing, uh, Wild Colonial Boys. It's going to be a hell of an evening. I'm going to be there, but don't let that put you off. Uh, congratulations to Gareth and Sam as the podcast goes from strength to strength. Now, the other part of the message is we need you to help keep the show on the road, keep the mics on, keep paying the bills so we can keep bringing you conversations like the one you're about to listen to right now. The easiest way to do that is join us on patreon.com forward slash tortoise The link is at the top of the podcast you're listening to right now. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. Thanks for sharing, liking, reviewing, and letting people know. The Tortoise Shack has no ads, no sponsors. We rely on word of mouth, and there's no better endorsement than when you tell someone to go check us out. Shutting up now. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Echo Chamber Podcast. My name is Tony Groves, and folks, we are back talking about, finally talking about what we used to call, Martin, if you recall, our, our late dear friend Don Foster used to say, Plague Island. Plague Island. Uh, what is happening in Plague Island? But with a twist, our, our regular uh, contributor and one of the best in the business, for my money, listener favourite, but now he's actually been promoted. So not only is he uh, an accountant, a professor of, econ- uh, professor of accountancy, he's an economist, he's been one of the people who dro- drove the Green New Deal. He's now, I believe, Richard Murray. Murphy is now Minister for Anti-Wokeness, Richard, I believe. Is that the new... Is that the new- <laughs> <laughs> we do have one of those these days, quite extraordinarily. Plague Island has its Minister for Anti-Wokeness, Esther McVeigh, and she hasn't even given up broadcasting on GB News just because she's joined the Cabinet. Unbelievable. It's a staggering thing just when, like, I know we real tongue-in-cheek there, but it's a staggering thing to see that they went, we want a minister, we don't really know what her brief is, but it'll just be for common sense and anti-wokery. Uh, and uh, but how, how do you do this? How do you do anti-wokeness? Do you go, go back to sleep, go back to sleep? <laughs> is that anti-wokeness? No, it's all about promoting prejudice, inequality, discrimination, hatred. That's obviously what anti-woke is. So, you know, that's what she's up to. She broadcasts on GB News. Here we go. That's my answer. No, and I, and I actually, refuse to do GB News. They yeah, well, keep on offering to. me money, you know. Yeah, I'll do you guys, but GB News, come on, <laughs> GB, but GB News, it is, it is a very fair, fair point to make, Richard, because they're a huge loss-making vehicle for vested interests to push a culture war agenda. That's it in a yeah. nutshell, isn't it? Yeah, the other thing I refuse to do is the Sun newspaper for very obvious reasons as well. Mm. Um, um, and they once offered me five hundred quid for a quote, and I said, eh, with it. I'm not mm. going near your quote or your 500 quid tainted money. And could that's what it is. Said, it is tainted money. Could you have said, and excuse my French, fuck the sun and got 500 quid? Well, I did say fuck the sun on Twitter or words to that effect. And of course, picked up a thousand followers in Hillsborough. Yeah. For, in, in Liverpool, <laughs> as a consequence of Hillsborough, I stated but, my but reasons. I mean, you know. it should never have survived beyond Hillsborough. But it should never not. It should not. Well, no. and, and, and the, uh, I didn't think we'd get here like right now, but it's, it's very scary to see the state of the British media. You know, we see this, this morning, and Richard, this is what we're going to get to is the fact that. You know the autumn statement, the new moves by uh, by by the Rishi Sunak uh, government to try and show that they're making the the I don't know was it the tenth or fifteenth reset at this stage? I I can't keep up. Um, that it's been lauded even by you know the 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 Times itself on the front page about uh, it was a good thing. We've kind of lost the, so in two so two two part question which I'm not supposed to do. We've lost the media in the UK to the, to a large degree, and we've um, was particularly the newspapers. And uh, there's been you know some moves to try and set themselves up to have another go at an election in the spring. Two parts to that. Um, I'm going to deal with the second part first. I don't think they have a clue what they're doing yet. What they did do was announce a cut in our national insurance rate, social security contribution. Um, and normally that would happen on the 6th of April because, you know, we have this stupid uh, 
tax year, which I think Ireland has inherited from the UK. Long, long history as to why. Uh, it goes back 350-odd years. We won't go there. But the point is that this should have happened in April. It's going to happen in January. So I, sitting in the studios of BBC Radio 2, as I was yesterday listening to the budget to go on air and talk about it, bragging here, um, I um, thought immediately oh, that's a May election. They've got to get it into people's pay packets for three months before the election. I wasn't alone in thinking that. Uh, it was obvious that this was the thinking. Jeremy Hunt denies that. Frankly, why would people who are sleepwalking towards the job centre, which is what most Tory MPs are, want to go to an election early when they could still hang out till November and get another six months' pay um, on 85000 or so a year, which is what they get? I don't see that a May election is that likely, but you know, you never know. This was a very odd thing to do. Is all I can say. It will impose a significant cost on business, which, of course, the government says it hates to do. But let's go to the media. The newspapers this morning are predictably split. We've got the Murdoch, the Times and the Sun, and then we've got the Mail Group, the Daily Mail itself, and then the ones like it, Daily Express and so on, all saying, fantastic, we've had a tax cut um, and singing the praises of the Tories. Um, that isn't true of some others. Obviously, The Guardian uh, picked it up. I mean, every now and again, it tries to show it's a little left of centre. But what's really interesting at this moment is not the print media, because let's be blunt about it. You know, the very fact that we're here talking like this and people will be listening, and thanks, everyone. Um, the fact is that the print media is pretty darned irrelevant these mm-hmm. days. The numbers buying it are going down heavily, and that's particularly true of things like the mail in the UK. You know, its numbers are tumbling from the millions who used to buy it. But if you actually listened to some of the broadcast media last night and this morning, the attitude is really very, very different um, the best political commentary program in the UK at the moment is by Sophie Ridge on Sky. Now, I never used to think that I'd be singing the praises of Sky, but actually it really does provide the best news service within the UK that we've now got, um, I think. Um, their team, uh, led by um, the Sophie Ridge program at seven o'clock in the evening, um, was just laying into the Tories last night, absolutely not accepting any of the nonsense that they were being told. Deep cynicism seems to be built into the team and a great group of journalists, um, some of whom I know, um, and they're good. Um, but I then switched over from watching Sophie Ridge's interpretation of this and her antagonism towards what the budget was saying and the fact that she was willing to call out the bullshit – including the fact that there was no tax cut, there were actually massive tax rises, Mm. um, which she focused on. And I turned over to um, watch Channel 4 News on repeat um, because I'm a bit of a sucker for the news on days like um, Budget Day. And there was Krishnan Guru Murphy, who was just laying into the Tories. I mean, so obviously contemptuous. You know, this is the man who's just been doing Strictly Come Dancing and showing us his Charleston and Foxtrot and God knows what else. And suddenly, there we are, we've got him actually telling a Tory, look, stop repeating this nonsense to me, answer my questions in such a direct way. The fact is, my wife thought she was about to land in one. Um, he was so obviously lang- uh, angry. This morning, we have somebody who you know, blatantly has a Tory background, Nick Robinson, who is one of the BBC's lead political correspondents. He was on the Premier Radio programme in the UK this morning, the Today programme, and was basically asking the chance, to the Chancellor of the Exchequer, are you dishonest? I mean, as blatantly as are you dishonest? Did you mislead the House of Commons? You said you were giving away the biggest tax cut in British history. And in fact, you're massively increasing taxes. It wasn't a nine billion giveaway. It was a 30 plus billion increase. So there is, and I genuinely think that this has happened over the last few months. And we're really seeing signs of it. The broadcast media have had enough. They just will not put up with the nonsense. And then treating the Labour Party the same way. You know, you can keep on telling us, oh, we don't know what's going to happen until we see the books. For God's sake, if you can't see what's happening in this statement as being a pretty good indication of the state of the books, then why can't you comment at all? They're fed up with the evasiveness, the non-answers, and the fact that, frankly, no politician has an answer to give them. So I treat... 
the media is in these two very different parts. And then we, of course, get the podcast community. And the people who've been liberated from the BBC, Emily Maitlis, who does her show in the news agents on, um, yeah. oh, what do they call global media? Now, well-funded, etc. cetera. Um, but candid, frank, obviously showing their cynicism, not seeking to disguise it, accepting a variety of, of opinion. I am encouraged by all of that. Plus, I mean, a friend of mine, Owen Jones, recently did a podcast, um, and he had a Israeli, a Jewish um, professor on, talking about the nature of genocide. Now, Owen had the sense to leave this guy alone for 13 minutes while he explained extraordinarily the nature of genocide. But that sort of podcast is now really changing the scene in the UK as well. So let's not get too despondent about the state of the media. There can, is can I, a can I come in? cynicism around. I want, I want to come in and say how, how refreshing it is to hear you say that because I see it um, as it plays out whereby, you know, I, I recorded with a, a Palestinian man in Copenhagen who has written extensively, you know, he's he has debated Hamas on Al Jazeera years ago and he's talked about the, the problems there. And I, I finished the podcast 40 minutes in and thought to myself going, wow. Um, this has this is going to add to the discourse and the amount of people who immediately listened to it and said, I have such an understanding of the, the nuances of, of, of it as opposed to the talking points of, of it. And I do think podcasting, I do think broadcasting without those... Um, Without those restraints, you know, like the BBC has got restraints on it. It absolutely does. Um, Sky News yeah. has actually, Sky News has been, has been shown to, it's particularly hold, I, I also think, I also think Sky News has the fatigue of the Tories at this stage as well, by the way, Richard. Okay. I, I think they're just like, you yeah. know, 13 years of you, just go, you know, um, yeah, but, I agree. But, but, um, but on the, on the, um, on the actual things that happened yesterday, I'm glad you pointed out the fact that the tax cut is actually a tax. Uh, there's actually increases in taxation, and when you put it over the five year term, everybody's worse off. Everybody's still no one's no one's reclaiming. You know, no one's coming back to where they are. There is an interesting Irish angle on this, and I'm sorry to make it, but I have to bring it back to Irish audiences. When we had mm. our when we had to get our government together to put Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael together for the first time in the history of the state. One of the things that was said was by the, he's now tarnished, he was Taoiseach at the time, uh, Michal Martin, he said, uh, we have to avoid the perception of austerity. I put it to you that the fact that this is where we are now, uh, this is still austerity by stealth, really, Richard, that, that we're still continuing to say your consumption levels are less than they used to be, even if we're giving you an extra eight quid a week. Look, at the moment, and again, I've got to say, I found this refreshing. The Office for Budget Responsibility is not an organisation for which I normally give a lot of praise over here. It basically is a treasury stooge, in my opinion. Um, that's not going to help me get my next interview with them, is it? Um, but I think they know. Um, and yet yesterday it was being really candid in its publications. I'm the sort of sad git who goes and reads the Treasury's publications and then the Office for Budget Responsibility. By last night, I got through over 300 pages of stuff on the budget to find the data I wanted. Um, they were talking quite candidly about the fact that actually most people in the UK are 4% worse off now than they were before the pandemic. You know, that was honesty, which is unusual. And then without them really making any attempt to disguise it, it was very clear from the way they presented their data that there is actually going to be continuing austerity in the UK. We are going to see some really significant cuts in public spending. Over the next five years, it's something like 19% in department budgets. I've looked at the investment budget because nobody else seemed to have done that, and it's hidden on page 154 of the OBR report. You've got to really work your way to the end to find this stuff. And there it was that actually it's 16.7% cut 
in public investment. So blow your social housing that we need, blow your Green New Deal, or the fact that we've got flooding and failed water systems and we need to have better power systems and God knows what else. None of that's going to happen. The government's going to cut investment at this time. Why? Because that's the way they could show that they were going to have debt fall, which meant they could give a tax cut now, all of which is based upon deeply dubious assumptions. But these guys are, you know, you're saying the perception of austerity. Actually, I don't think they're trying to hide it anymore. And let's come back to this podcasting thing. I'm not going to spend this time blowing you guys you know, up and saying you're so fantastic. The whole podcast community, though, is doing something which is really radical. And you're part of it, clearly. And that is creating a change in the way in which people are seeking to understand the information they receive. They want critical analysis, and I think that is giving the rise to this feedback, and podcasting is leading that, and I think it's brilliant. Um, And I don't think, again, we would have seen that. Now, of course, you could say that these are just civil servants, and they know that full well that in a year's time they won't be serving the Tories, so what do they care anymore? I don't know. It felt more than that. They felt that there was an honesty about some of these disclosures, which made it easier to find that data than would otherwise have been the case. They're not trying to hide the fact that austerity is coming. What really scares me is that Labour aren't talking about that. That really frightens the hell out of me. Uh, And we've got to ask, you know, as an alternative to the Tories, Labour aren't putting themselves out there as a viable alternative. And I, I did see during the week... Somebody said, oh, I'm a lifetime Labour voter, but no more. I'm going to the Greens. And I thought, well, that's fucking useless. <laughs> you know, what are you doing that for? Well, I, I want I want to make one quick point before you answer, Richard. The Green Party in the UK is not the same as the Green Party in all Ireland of Ireland. They're, they're, they are different. So I don't know what they I you know, I just want to our, our our particular Green Party happened to we, we believe and I stand by it and, and they can criticize me all they want. Sold out and became very right wing in, in their neoliberal Tories greenwashing. On bikes, Tony. Tories on bikes. That's it. Full stop. Yeah. Look, we have two green parties in the body of Great Britain. Um, quite specifically, there's a Scottish Green Party. There's an English and Welsh uh, Green Party. Um, they are different. They take particularly different views on trans issues. Um, they are left of centre. They are not going to have a big impact on a general election. If they're lucky in England, they might get to three or four MPs, if they're lucky. I have been discussing with them. Some people who read my blog will know that I severely criticised the Green Party for some of its economic policy earlier this year because they were talking absolute nonsense about the nature of money and how they were going to control it, which would have been utterly disastrous. It would have been the gold standard on steroids, basically, is what they were offering. So terrible stuff. Let's go back to Labour. Look, Labour is, you know, is going to be the next government. They are so confident about that now that it is quite absurd how indifferent they are to public opinion. Um, Because we have first past the post and first past the post breeds their arrogance uh, on both sides of the house, uh, knowing full well that ultimately that means that one or either of them is going to be in government. Um, until they get a seismic shock, the shape of, well, not the SNP, because the SNP can't get big enough, and not the shape of Sinn Féin, because there isn't an equivalent thing to happen here. But until they get a seismic shock, they are going to carry on thinking, well, if they don't vote for them, they'll vote for us, and that's and the left, who cares about them? Because um, they've got nowhere else to go. There's this assumption the left will vote Labour because they've got nowhere else to go. So we've got the Labour Party saying basically... We won't spend any more than a £28 billion budget um, for investment, um, which is much smaller than the existing government budget for investment, by the way. And we're going to balance the books for day to day, which is much worse austerity than the Tories are delivering. So the Tories think that they have very cleverly set Labour up with an elephant trap um, here by publishing a budget, which, let's be honest, they know they are not going to deliver these spending plans. They're not stupid. Um, this is very much equivalent to what happened in the UK in 1997. Kenneth Clark was then Chancellor of the Exchequer. He put in place in 1997 a budget said very tight spending, control of spending, 
going to run a government surplus. Yeah, it was the last government surplus that we mm-hmm. ever had in the UK. I know you guys now live with these things day in, day out. But, um, Imaginary was, surpluses, but nonetheless. Keep yes, I, I have to say that. Okay. <laughs> but um, nonetheless, I mean, well, so was pretty much the UK one. But nonetheless, there was going to be a surplus because of this massive control of spending. And Labour fools that they were, Blair and Brown, did what Ken Clark set out and followed it to the letter because they said that was fiscal responsibility. Well, they could, you know, frankly... All the noises are that Rachel Reeves will follow whatever this plan says because that's what defines fiscal responsibility, apparently. There was nowhere, anywhere, anything that suggested that Labour were actually challenging this. They said, oh, we're going to end the non-DOM rule and we're going to end VAT um, on private school or we're going to charge VAT on private education in the UK, which together raised five billion. And this five billion is apparently transformational in the UK economy. Let's be clear, it's a half of one percent of UK government expenditure. Nobody has ever transformed a state on half of 1% of expenditure, but the Labour Party thinks it's going to and believes we're stupid enough to believe it. So in that sense, going back to your comment earlier about the perception of austerity, this is the perception of difference. And it's bullshit, technical term, yeah, um, but absolutely appropriate in this case. And they really are failing almost as miserably as the Tories and, to deliver any form and of I plan. Just want there is to, no I, plan. I feel I, like I need to write I a know, plan. I, know, I, I need listeners to know you wrote a plan on how to bring in more money in taxes. You wrote a huge plan and gave so many suggestions to how to raise more taxes, and yet they're obsessed with saying, well, we're actually going to cut taxes and we're going to use that. And they're and, they're, and like they're literally leaning... You, you mentioned the OBR. The OBR basically said inflation was such that it actually gave them a little bit more headroom. You know, we always come up with these interesting yeah. phrases. We had a little bit more headroom, and that's what allowed them to do this 2% cut on, effectively, what we'd call in, in, in Ireland the PRSI. Okay, that's... That was yes. That. So, um, but I want to I just come back. To, so, they, so they didn't actually do any real substantial tax cuts. It is austerity by stealth. They also did something insanely cruel, Richard. They've come back to the long-term unemployed... With the and and I mean we've all seen you know I, I don't know if you saw the video where our Taoiseach was asked had he seen I Daniel Blake uh, on on in the doll he was asked had he seen I Daniel Blake and he said I have but I've also seen Benefit Street and he said and the truth is somewhere between the two it was a it was a gross thing for him to have said you know and uh, uh, but we know because we know. In Ireland, I think when they did this scoping exercise to find out how big benefit fraud was, it was 0.0003% of claimants had had fraudulent claims. And more people were actually being underpaid, Martin, as we recall, and they had to to give more people money back. I've I've known this for a very long time, for a very, very long time, maybe 25 years, that less money is defrauded than goes unclaimed. I've known that for but, a very but long R- time. But Richard, now they've come out with this pl- plan to say, well, we'll give you 18 months to, to go or to get this training. Uh, and if you're, if, you know, if you are actually, if you are unwell, sure you can work from home now. And if you don't start working from home within six months, we're cutting your benefits. This is back to that, to that awful, ugly, you know, fighting a battle that doesn't actually exist really. You know, the cost of implementation of this. I mean, look, give me your opinion on it. I just think it's disgusting. It's sick. Now, I know that my children use sick in a different way than I do. Mm. I'm going to use it in my old-fashioned terms. It's sick. It's bad. It's dire. I hate it. It's unfair. It's unjust. It's a denial of the humanity of, well, those who are proposing it and their denial of the humanity of those they're going to impose it on. Um, There are people who are genuinely ill. They can't work. They have disabilities that mean the simple things in life cause sufficient problem and sufficient stress that there's no time left over to actually do work for somebody else in exchange for cash. There's also the absolutely straightforward fact that the vast majority of low-paid work, which is what most people who are disabled are going to end up doing, isn't suitable to be done at home because it's some form of production line, it's some form of production, it's some form of process where you have to have materials delivered to you and taken from you, and the costs of doing that are going to mean it's not going to happen at home. It's They're not as fortunate as I am. You know, I just produce words, and I can do that at home, but most of the work that these people are going to be asked to do cannot be done in that way. So there is an absolute shortage of the type of work that this 
scheme demands that people take in the first place. It is therefore impossible that this scheme can be delivered without people being penalised. And the really sick element of this scheme is that if people are denied benefits, they're also denied access to their medicines. They do not get free prescriptions. So they've now got no cash left to pay the bills to feed or anything else. And they've got no cash left in that case because they're denied free prescriptions. Any access to their medicines either. Basically, well, let's call it a death sentence. I mean, it is as sick as that. And I'm not going to beat around the bush. That's how bad it was. I read a tweet yesterday saying, I'm so sickened by this, I don't know how to describe it. And it got a lot of you know, sympathy because that's how you should feel about this. If you've got a stroke of empathy in your body, nobody would dream this one up. And yeah, you're absolutely right, Martin, about fraud. In the UK, the scale of unclaimed benefits is something like 15 billion at least. The scale of fraud is about 1.5 to 2 billion, we reckon. So a factor of about eight times the number of unclaimed benefits to the number of fraudulent claims made. If we compare the number of fraudulent claims made, you know, two billion worth, compared to the tax gap, according to HM Revenue and Customs, that's 35 billion. So tax abuse is vastly bigger in, in scale than benefit fraud. And yet the number of benefit fraud investigators is vastly bigger than the number of people trying to chase down those rich people who by and large don't declare their income probably. I see yesterday, and it was slipped through in the in, in the Irish government, that the social insurance age is going to, you know, the age you pay social insurance has just slipped from 66 to 70 and nobody ever mentioned it. It just simply slipped through yesterday and nobody has spotted it. What? And yeah, yeah, from 66 to 70. On the back of that, we're adopting the Tory plans for disability pension, but, uh, where we're going to grade disability I, pensions I, I, by how close to death you Mark, are. Can I, Mark, you know? can I come in on that just for a moment? I need to clarify for listeners' benefits. The, the government, our government, have act, currently have a consultation out to tell us what, what you want to see with disability payments and unemployment payments. The same playbook as Richard has alluded to and Richard you said it was a death sentence it killed people under the previous um, uh, yeah. labour active employment activation schemes it killed people yeah. uh, and, and, and people who had maybe might have had three or four good years left of, with an illness were dead a lot sooner because of the, yes. the, the their treatment this, these, this is, these are the facts isn't it well we have bluntly we have democidal governments now and yeah, a few years ago, I didn't know the word democide. The choice by a government to kill its population. That's what democide is. And yet, clearly, during the COVID era, we had it. And it's opened our eyes to the fact that this is actually clearly happening in other areas as well. Benefits is one of those. The health service more generally is another. Um, I mean, it's now thought that 330,000 people have died as a result of government policy decisions. Like, died early, let's be clear, everyone dies. So we're talking about dying earlier than they should have done as a consequence of government policy decisions in the UK over the last decade or so. I mean, under the Tories. And that's staggering. 330,000 at least. This does include COVID people, but on top of that, there's a lot of others as well. Um, and this is really scary stuff. Um, you know, I, I actually have some sympathy with increasing the age at which you contribute towards PRSI, national insurance. Uh, why? Um, look, I'm 65 and nearly three quarters. Um, <laughs> just to put that in the context of this 66-year-old um, time limit, which happens to be the same here at present in the UK. Um, officially, I'm an old-age pensioner next year, and I really don't feel like it. Um, and as a result, I don't make a contribution as from next year to national insurance. Um, the saving for me is quite significant. Um, my earning capacity hasn't changed. And so I'm not quite sure why I'm given, being given, uh, because I passed my 66th birthday next March, a big um, tax rebate, which I don't think I deserve. So there are questions about the desirability on contributions. What is not true is that we should be then trying to actually, in any shape or form, penalise people as a consequence of any other change made. We have a duty to support our society. If we haven't, government's failed. It's the end of it. The government's just failed. And I think that's... Let's come to the core of this. 
I mean, let's come right back and stand back. I, I, I wrote an article for a newspaper in Scotland this morning. Um, I write for The National, um, which is a national nationalist newspaper in Scotland. And I wrote about what happened um, in uh, the autumn statement. Um, and I just said, look, you know, there's three fundamental things. First of all, there are no tax cuts. Secondly, there's austerity. Third, there's a lack of investment. And fourth, Labour is going to fail us because it's not talking about it. The difficulty of all that, you know, for Scotland is, you know, it has this imposed on it. And I would support Scotland leaving the union uh, so that it can do something better. But that requires there to be a plan. And the fact is that, you know, I mean, you very kindly said I've written a lot of stuff about how to raise tax in the UK since June, July this year when I started publishing the Taxing Wealth Report. Um, it's £115 billion I could now find, I reckon, all of which based upon official data statistics. This is not stuff that I've made out of thin air. Um, so I can find a great deal of money. I could, if I raised all that money, I could, of course, cut a lot of other taxes for people who are on lower income as well, because this is all basically from people with wealth. Um, so I could really reorganise the way in which we run society and tackle inequality in the UK, and we need to do all that. But there's more than that. We actually need to talk about how we actually use savings to be the capital for investment. We need to get over this phobia about debt. We need to stop these stupid things called fiscal rules, which are just make-believe stuff made up by politicians, um, to try to constrain them spending money on behalf of people like those who need benefits. Um, all of this is just their bullshit to try and pretend that the neoliberal world is real and can be sustained. The neoliberal world has failed. Let's stop pretending that it is ever going to be revived. If there's one casualty of the last few years, it is the neoliberal worldview. Because although, you know, I sat in a recording studio at the BBC yesterday with Mark Littlewood from the Institute of Economic Affairs, um, Liz Truss's evil, main financial evil. advisor for her glorious seven weeks in office. Um, and I've known Mark for a long time and we don't agree on absolutely anything. Um, but, you know, he's still trying to promote the idea that there is no low tax alternative world. We live in a world where we face a green transition, where we face an aging population, where we face, because of what has happened with neoliberalism, more people who are unwell and unable to care for themselves as a consequence. We face a de-skilled population because we chose not to invest in the appropriate skills that people needed to actually manage the world for the future. We have a country, both our countries, at risk from the consequences of you know, climate change, flooding, um, and so on. Um, and we've seen that happening. Um, and these things are going to require spending. Unless we have a plan to pull all that together, to rethink the way in which we organise society to deal with this, well, you know, let's introduce another technical term, which I hope you guys are going to let me put into your show. And if you don't, you're not going to have to bleep it because it's fucked. Um, that's it. I mean, and I don't use that word lightly on a podcast, but I can't think of another better one. And there are occasions when you have to use pure Anglo-Saxon to explain it. And this is one of those occasions. We are well and truly fucked because there is no plan to deal with the mess we're in. And the one thing that this budget said, and there was a great chart in it. Um, I mean, if you're a techie like me, it's a great chart. Um, it's a thing called the sectoral balances, and most people don't understand the sectoral balances, but they explain who is borrowing and who's lending and, and to who. And there's a chart inside the forecast for the UK which shows that although the sectoral balances, the amount that people have borrowed as a whole, the amount of businesses have borrowed as a whole, the amount that governments borrowed as a whole, the amount the overseas sector has borrowed as a whole, has swung all over the place over the last 15 years. Um, and quite reasonably, most of the time with businesses and people in the overseas sector saving because they don't trust the government and don't want to spend, therefore the government's had to run deficits. Mysteriously, according to the government, they're all going to merge at near enough zero. Nobody's going to be borrowing and nobody's going to be lending to each other. We're going to go to that state of economic nirvana, which is called equilibrium, where everything is as good as it is possible to be. That, by 2028, is What's going to happen in the UK, according to this whole plan? You could not believe that somebody was stupid enough to publish a chart that shows that. And yet that is what it is. They think that we've arrived at our destination. Um, the destination, by the way, is always a point to the northeast. 
Um, because if you look at any graph, according to a neoliberal, the graph should go upwards and to the right, and therefore the destination is somewhere in the northeast. I don't think it's Belfast in the case well, of well, Ireland. Well, HS, um, HS2 didn't go that far, Richard. You know? No, and it, and it isn't Middlesbrough in England or Aberdeen or Inverness in Scotland, wherever we might be. But you know, the point is they, they have these stupid assumptions about where our destination is, and apparently we are, and I've never seen them publish this before, going to reach that destination. Now, either somebody is almightily taking the piss in the Office for Budget Responsibility because they know, again, sorry about the language, but it seems appropriate. I am really stressed about this stuff, and this indicates it. Um, They really are trying to tell us, look, this is nonsense. This isn't going to happen. Or somebody believes it is going to happen, in which case... God help us all. Or, 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 or Richard, the third option is someone needs that to be the case for them to be able to factor out their plans to say that this is where it's going to meet. And that's an issue as well, whereby we've, I've seen this previously under even, you know, under the, Inflation Reduction Act in the US, where, the, you know, the Biden spending is, 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 is based on certain parameters that literally are, um, it's it's as if it's as if all of the ducks aligned and gave him the, the results that he needs in ten years yeah. time to prove what he's doing. So so it's 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 a fallacy. Um, couple of really quick hits for you. We delighted to see David Cameron come back in. He must have been thrilled to see the architect of Brexit arrive back in. And um, you know he he's come he's come back to uh, now. Look, he's only had a little. There's only. A little bit of a cloud over him in China and uh, and the business dealings that he had. We, we you know, we, we, none none of it's definitive, Richard. But it's a bit strange. The, the prodigal Don, yeah. <laughs> now we learn also that there is a ta- tax investigation. Oh yes, over his time with Green Sill. Just to add to it, no, look, this oh, Jesus, you've got to be desperate if David Cameron is the answer to your question. I mean, it doesn't matter what the question is. Is if David Cameron is the answer, you are desperate. And there is no question I can think of which actually results in David Cameron. Well, there is, but we're not, we like we said, we won't speak ill of uh, on this podcast, but there's a, there's a question about a pig's head and something else, but we won't get. Yeah. I was going to say, unless you're seeking the answer to who's got to the pig's head. Isn't it amazing? (laughs) The parallels, Tony, between uh, the UK and here, where the, the, the two incumbents, we'll just call them the Tory party, because they are the Tory party. <laughs> yes. Where the two incumbents are now going back to tainted members of the past who had a high profile, simply to try and garner votes. And it's, it's no, I mean, here we've had Bertie Ahern accepted back into the fold. I mean, he's our David Cameron. He just. No, is. he's not. He's worse because he, because, because his, um, Okay, maybe he's not. Maybe he's not. It's actually he's not. it's actually very strange. No, I don't think Bertie. I mean, I you know, yeah. come on. I've been around. But, I've known the Irish team for a long time. I can remember, you know, Bertie being around. No, he wasn't David Cameron. No. He wasn't that bad. He wasn't good. No, I'm not pretending to exonerate Bertie Ahern. But uh, Cameron. I mean, apart from the fact he was incompetent and he left incompetent people in office, he did let Osborne deliver austerity. He killed people bluntly. Mm. He led us to the situation where. Why didn't we get Brexit? Because the people of this country hated him, and that was the best way they could tell him they hated him. The only decent thing David Cameron ever did was to walk out of Downing Street one morning and say, I quit. Mm. I just wish he had meant that it was a life sentence rather than apparently seven years. Just, just on, just on, 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 on Cameron's, um, you know, how, how he delivered austerity and he delivered those things. This is really important now because even yesterday in the, in the economic statement, the, the, the point was, Everybody was relieved to see that they were going to put up some benefits by the rate of inflation. And that used to be a norm, Richard. So, the, so it was, it was ne- staggering. Yeah. So now, now what is a no, what used to be a norm is a victory. And that shows you, doesn't it? How, yeah. how ex- expectations. I mean, it was. Changed. It was, you know, we had a rule that pensions went up by the wage rate inflation. And he's done it. And everybody said, that's amazing. He's done what the rule says. Um, the triple lock, you know, put it up by 8.7% and benefits went up by 6.8% because they use a different calendar year for benefits than they do for pensions. Um, and the inflation rate had fallen in the meantime. But he could have picked the following month when, in fact, the inflation rate would have been 4.7%, but he didn't. And everybody said, that's amazing. He, what a generous guy. Look, the reality is that if you put up benefits and old age pensions for those who only live on the state UK old age pension, and by the way, the pension for people over the age of 70, 
75 in the UK is a lot worse for than for people under the age of 75 in the UK, which is just bizarre in the extreme. Um, but they didn't actually increase the, pen, the pension for everybody at the same time. They created an age division. But for the people who, like me, will be a pensioner from next March, the pe- state old age pension is 11,500 quid. Try living on 11,500 quid if that's your only source of income. It's exceptionally difficult. And try living on our universal credit, which is much less than 11,500 quid. I mean, they celebrated putting up these benefits. And the reality is that people on the lowest incomes have suffered the highest rates of inflation. So they pick an average rate of inflation to apply it to the incomes of the people who've had actual food and heating and other energy price rises, which are going to be in the order of 15 plus percent on average over the period in question, and give them 7% and say, we're being generous. No, you're not. You're leaving them worse off. Again, we come back to this point. It's down to empathy. It's down to putting yourself into the other person's shoes. Curiously, I, you are the second podcast I've recorded this morning, guys. I'm really sorry to tell you that. Shocking. Um, oh. And the first, Please. yeah, I know, it's terrible, isn't it? Um, and uh, the, the French jumped in ahead of you, and I did a podcast on the nature of truth this morning. Now, that is an obscure topic for you to get into, but, you know, a bit philosophical. And I was talking about that actually there is no such thing as truth, but if we are to understand the other person's perception of truth, we have to stand in their shoes, see their perspective, try to understand where they're coming from. Then we might find common ground, which establishes on a Venn diagram enough area of overlap where we will understand each other. That was my description. I thought it worked quite well. They uh, seem to think it did. I, I will say now, this. The I didn't, this I didn't think is, we'd be talking Nietzsche on this podcast, but nonetheless... Keep... No, I didn't think we would, but here we go. I like going off on tangents that you don't expect. Keep you on your toes. <laughs> and the point about this one was, and this is really important, these people in government are not trying to put themselves in the shoes of those people who they are trying to give this benefit rise to and do not understand how hard up they really are. And I just think that's the fundamental failure of the neoliberal mindset. It's all about me, 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 and I am a doing okay, therefore sod the rest of you. And that is not the basis for living well. And these guys are guaranteeing that we can't live well because they don't think about other people. Richard, I've one last kind Am of Am I pod- on my soapbox still? No, Can no, I, I, think, I, I, think, I think that's a really good point because we, we live in, Martin always says we live in a post-truth world. I don't know if we've ever lived anywhere else, to be honest with you. As a, I, as a, you know, the cheeky reference to Nietzsche is, wasn't he said there's no, there's no facts, just interpretations of the truth, I believe. I've, I've butchered the, 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 the quote, but it was something like that. And he was also a bit of a madman himself, but nonetheless, um, I want. I want. I, wa- <laughs> I said something remarkably similar this morning, by the way. Yeah, and and I just, but I want to come back to, and actually, it is related in a in in a, in, a, in a broad sense. The reaction to you know, so so you had Suella Braverman calling solidarity marches for people in Palestine hate marches. You've seen the the issues uh, as it boils up in the UK, and you know this phrase that you hear across the globe that the streets are with Palestine. And the government aren't, you know, we've seen this. Mm. Ireland is kind of an outlier. Spain is an outlier. We've, you know, we've got, Mm. um, in terms of, in terms of the situation in Gaza, and again, it goes both sides. Like Keir Starmer has been appalling as well on this in terms of Israel's right to Mm -hmm. defend itself and what it, what that extends to. Can I ask you about public sentiment in terms of the, the overall thing? Because I do believe as bad as it has been, and it is absolutely barbaric what's happened, that Israel will never get a pass again because now things like what we said at the beginning of this podcast, podcasts exist, other mediums exist. You don't have to get your news from the IDF. You can get it from places like this. Has that had an impact within the UK in the same way as I believe it has in other areas that it's, it's, it's started to actually say, well, this guy's come on now. and actually, he's telling lies now. We can, we can fact check in real time. Has that had that impact in the UK? Yes. Um, and I think Gaza is a good example of that. Um, first of all, this blanket idea that Israel is always right, and there has been this long tradition of we'll equate Jews with Israel with the Israeli government. I think that has broken down. I think it's now very obvious that you may 
very clearly question Netanyahu and anybody who says that that's anti-Semitic is just, in a sense, being anti-Semitic themselves um, by trying to equate a generality to Jews, which is not true. Um, not everybody in Israel supports Netanyahu. Not everybody who is Jewish supports everything that Israel does. There has been a growth of understanding that we can see these groups separately and that you may question Netanyahu and his government in particular and that that is not the grounds for calling you anti-Semitic. So that, I mean, I, I, I took this risk on my blog. I put this issue onto my blog. I decided I could not ignore it. It was too important. And um, so far, as far as I know, nobody's really tried to accuse me of being anti-Semitic for raising Gaza and saying that I am really concerned. There is very clearly now an understanding that there has to be a two-state solution. Um, quite a lot of people are asking why from the rivers to the sea actually is anti-Semitic um, anymore um, because that cannot be Israel and it cannot be Palestine. It has to be that there is coexistence and that that should be recognised and it clearly isn't been. And there's a growing awareness of the fact that, for example, there are massive problems on the West Bank as well as in Gaza. There is an outright disgust, of course, about what is happening in Gaza. I mean, yeah, let's be clear. Also, nobody, nobody, nobody has exonerated Hamas. Nobody is trying to say that Hamas has done anything right. Nobody has tried to justify Hamas's actions because people don't understand why Hamas did what it did. And they are shocked and horrified by what Hamas did. And I am. But that doesn't mean that they then turn around and say, look, you know, that doesn't mean to say you know, we can, that justifies the killing of children. Um, in Gaza, uh, that just cannot follow. Um, and so there is an awareness that the people in Gaza have a right to a home as well. And I think that, therefore, the free pass that Israel had has gone. Hmm. Israel is now, as a country, or rather as a government of a country, subject to scrutiny and the understanding that it may fail, and is not just failing Israel, but is failing the people it claims to represent more broadly in the diaspora, um, the Jewish diaspora um, well, worldwide. Well said. Um, well said. And I think, and that to me is really important. Um, and that we've learned how to negotiate the language around this, not always entirely successfully. We're bound to make mistakes. But I think we're trying very hard to negotiate the language around this to make clear that we're disgusted by a government that is far-right, neo-fascist, includes convicted terrorists and so on, and their policies, and we're not in any shape questioning the right of there to be in Israel in the future or for there to be a home which Jews may look to, but there must also be a recognition of the rights of Palestine. I just want to make one point, Martin, before you come in, and it's just really important to say this. The uh, I I don't like the whole the debate. We have to keep talking about from the river to the sea as if it's a big as if it's you know it, it's a distraction. It's just it's it's distraction theater in in a large part. Yeah. But it's also one point important point. Hamas removed it. This is not to exonerate Hamas in any way, but Hamas removed it from its charter um, after 2014. You don't hear that reported because you know it's not suitable. It's still in the Likud's charter. Yes, which is important to point out. So, so it's not just like one of my Jewish friends said it to me. He said, "I said I asked him because that's what you should do. You should ask a Jewish person." And said, "What do you think of that when you hear it?" And he said, "I don't like it from either side because I know some parts will weaponize it as a as a as a, yeah. as a thing, and I know that the Israeli government will weaponize it to to this to actually mean that this is what." I mean as a Jewish person, and that's not true either. So that's, yeah. So go ahead, Martin. Sorry, apologies. Well, I, I you know, I'm looking at other conflicts uh, and historically looking at other conflicts. And if you take, for instance, uh, our own situation in Northern Ireland, there are catchphrases on either side that are universal. We have our day will come, Chucky Arlaw. And then you have on the other side, Ulster says no. And if you go back far enough to the Second World War, you have British troops that fought in Africa. 
that literally used um, Arab phrases as war cries, in that over time, a phrase loses its meaning. It becomes something else. And these are just war, tribal war cries. Yeah. That's all they are. The actual meaning has long been lost behind them. Yeah, I agree with you. Let's go and search. But this comes back to that point I was making earlier about what is truth. We have to search for the other person's position to find the common ground. If we can't try to walk beside them to find that narrative which will give a sufficient connection to understand their position, we're in trouble. We don't have to agree with everyone, but we have to learn how to coexist. And at the moment, we've got the most perfect evidence that there isn't an attempt to coexist going on here. And that, to me, is the tragedy that is happening in Gaza right now. And at some point, that is going to have to change. We all know, Will, we all know that every conflict eventually is resolved in some way. And that if there is a natural justice element to a conflict, and in this case, clearly there's a natural justice element to the right of people in Palestine to be able to live with some degree of honour, respectability and income, then that will ultimately find a way through. It'll have to be respected. The world won't accept it otherwise. And Israel can't expect the world to continue supporting it if it will oppose that in the long term. And that sentiment is changing. I mean, I think that, you know, all the talks about ceasefires, all the nonsense we've had about humanitarian pauses rather than ceasefires, the politicians are not taking the people of the UK with them on that. I mean, and I'm sure there are people who do agree and or just aren't interested uh, with the politicians. But, I mean, overall, the ceasefire call is the one that is winning because there's a humanitarian crisis and it's too easy for people to imagine themselves in that situation. And therefore, they will sympathise with the, uh, the Palestinian cause and Israel is not helping itself by doing that. Richard, I think we'll leave it there. I think that was a very good uh, podcast, and we're a bit sorry that you went to the cheese eating surrender monkeys first, <laughs> oh, but God. we were you're here with us now, and we will forgive I'll, you for I'll, that. Allez le bleu. <laughs> and, uh, we, and we will forgive you that faux pas we'll stick on a French so we will say au revoir to you Richard and thank you very much for coming on and doing this podcast with us thank you very much it's always a pleasure and we really appreciate it make sure you check out Richard's blogs they're amazingly detailed to give you the to give it to you the facts of what has been said and breaks down spin better than just about anybody out there and his Twitter feed is, is, is an enormous source of information for us in terms of what's happening it's not just obviously we it's, it's predominantly uk but we can see it all and we will come back to richard on the green agenda because it's fallen off the off the um agenda as such so we will come back on that because i know it's something you're really passionate about but thanks so much for your time again today uh, we do have we will be going back to speak to um someone in gaza this afternoon so we we will have that conversation for you as well but but as i said uh, listeners love richard and it's great to get back and have that that insight thanks so much folks talk to you all soon take care bye bye Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber Podcast. Subscribe now.